Good morning. It is really good to be here with you all this morning. I would like to begin this morning with just some a question, a bit of a thinking. I'm going to make you think a little bit this morning. And I'm going to make us kind of hit something that may feel a little odd and uncomfortable, but I think it's worthwhile in our journey this morning. So, let's say you are trying to find a leader that you want to support, a cause perhaps, um, an agenda, a goal. You have a goal in your mind, and some leader does as well, and well, multiple do. And so you have to make a choice. Do I support this person or do I support that person? And you listen to the one person and they get up and they say, we're going we're gonna to accomplish our goals and we're going to make it. It's going to work. It's going to be good. It's going to be successful. It's going to accomplish every dream you've ever had. Wow, that's pretty good. The second one gets up and they say, we're going to try. We're going to try our best. It might work. May not. It's going to be hard. You're not going to see a lot of results immediately, maybe even for a while, but we may get there eventually. We'll get there eventually. If you have a choice of who you're going to follow, who are you going to follow? Someone seems very adamant about the goals in which they're going to do, and they're going to be noticeable, and you're going to see them face to face. You're going to note the progress easily. Another says, this is going to be tough. Not going to look that successful. Not going to get a whole lot out of it. People are doubting. Yeah, I, I, yeah. That's part of this. We make plans to accomplish goals. We want to be successful. No one goes to college seeking a degree that's not going to put them in the direction that they want to go. We make plans to accomplish these goals. We want to be successful. We, we crave that stability and security for something to be successful. And so when we encounter several difficulties, we ask the question, is God even there? We know God is there here, but we struggle here, don't we? I bring these points up because today we're going to look at a passage that, as has been mentioned, we've heard it. Many of us have heard it before. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard this sermon before. You've probably heard somebody a lot smarter than me give it. But it's one that's easy to miss the struggle in it, the discouragement in it, the fact that it's saying things are not going to be as noticeably well as we wish it was. It's going to seem aloof. It's going to seem confusing. It's going to seem odd. It's going to seem frustrating. It's going to seem discouraging. Why would God put us in such a direction? The passage we're going to be in is a continuation in our series on the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4 today. So if you would please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 verses 1 through 20. 
Mark chapter 4, 1 through 20. As we've been going through the book of Mark, we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? We've been asking the question, what is Jesus doing? And we've been asking the question, what is this kingdom of God that he seems to be bringing to earth? Those have been sort of our three primary questions that we have been asking as we've gone through the book of Mark. And after a few months, we've made it to chapter 4. How long is this series going to last? Your guess is as good as mine. But this is a really crucial part of Jesus' ministry. It's, it's a discouraging part. We, we think of Jesus going through and we, we, we think his godhood well when we say, oh, everything's going according to plan. Everything's fine. Jesus doesn't seem to have issues with this. He's God. He knows what's going on. We read the Gospels through the perspective of Jesus, and there's many ways that we should. But if we read this story, and especially the context around it, from the place of his disciples, from the place of the crowds, things don't look very good. Mark chapter 4, 1 through 20. Before we jump in, I think some context would be useful for us today. We just got off of a time of the last three sermons, three, three messages, where Jesus has encountered resistance for the first time in his ministry from the healing of, um, from the, healing of the man who was sent down through the opening of a roof, from the welcoming in of the tax collector, Levi, to the issues of fasting and Sabbath, all three of those times, Jesus encountered incredible resistance, being called a blasphemer, being called one that is loose with the law of God, severe offenses for the Jewish people of the time. Then the other passage we covered last week was when Jesus wasn't just criticized, he was called Satan. Belzebub is the word, the lord of the flies, lord of demons. He is possessed by this evil spiritual force. There's such resistance that God's people said that God's servant was possessed by God's enemy. That's a massive accusation. And we overlook it so Quickly, if I'm following somebody, if somebody were to call a pastor at a church or even a small group leader, someone who is being controlled by Satan, I'd struggle with trusting them, wouldn't you? And these aren't just random. We forget the status that the religious leaders had at the time. They were God's people to teach obedience to the law. So if God's people were saying, this guy's possessed by a demon, okay, oh, that's a big deal. What do you say to that, Jesus? It forces the question. It helps us realize the doubt that the crowds may have had, that the doubt that even the disciples may have had as they go, Jesus, you're, you're telling us about this new kingdom that's supposed to come, and it's going to be great, and we're supposed to repent for it because God's coming, but you're getting all this criticism. You're getting all of this resistance. These guys are saying that what you're saying is not true. What, help us understand here, Jesus, what's going on? Wouldn't you ask the same questions? I know that I would. This is an interesting passage 
because it's one of the first things Jesus says after being accused of being possessed or a servant of Satan. What would you say if you were in Jesus' shoes or sandals, if you will? What would you say to defend that, to say, no, 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 they, they got it wrong. These, these, these religious leaders have it wrong. The crowds have it wrong. Trust me, we, we, the, I am God's, I am the son of God coming to save you from your sin. How would you defend that? What would that look like for you? Something tells me it would look very different than what Jesus did. The passage sets us beside the Sea of Galilee. The passage sets us in a place where Jesus is surrounded by a massive amount of people. People have heard of him. People have questioned him. People may have heard of the the, the testimonies of miracles. They're saying, who is this guy? Some say he's doing miracles. Others say he's Satan. I mean, two opposite sides of a spectrum, right? Who do you trust? A large crowd draws to Jesus. So large, in fact, that as he sits on the shoreline, this massive crowd is kind of coming close to him and making it hard for him to be able to communicate. So he, he, he takes a boat from one of his disciples. Disciples were fishermen, clever. He gets on this boat, goes out into the water. And if you imagine yourself on a lake shore and this man out on a boat talking and the lake shore is covered with people up to the water line, the water is lapping up and the, the wind may be blowing, but you're hearing this man as he's trying to teach and you're like, okay, he's finally going to respond to some of these criticisms that the religious leaders have been making against him. What's he going to say that proves that things are going to be okay? What's he going to say? I'd say this is the point where we read the passage because I think Jesus said it best. Mark chapter 4, verses 3 through 9, Jesus says this. This is his response. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what we get? Really, Jesus? You could have said anything? You could have told them of, some, of, of what it was like to be with the Father in heaven. You could have told them about what's going to happen. You could have done some crazy miracle. You could have done all these things. No, you decide to teach confusing stories, parables. What are you doing, Jesus? Who is Jesus? Right now, he's confusing. Right now, it doesn't seem like he's making much sense. This is the beginning of this 
part in the book of Mark where Jesus begins teaching in parables. Chapter 4 has an incredible amount of parables lumped into itself. It's a very central part of Jesus' teaching portion in Mark. Jesus doesn't teach in Mark nearly as much as he does in Mark. And so this is a very important part of the book. This is a part where Mark forces us to stop and sit in what Jesus has to say to us. And right now, he says that he's teaching us in several parables. What's a parable? A parable, a a fun little definition that I've given. We did a study on the parables in youth group a couple of months ago. And the way that I defined it, and kids, this is on your kids' sheet, so write this down. A parable is an ordinary story meant to communicate extraordinary truths. I'll say that again. A parable is an ordinary story meant to communicate extraordinary truths. So much that God wants to teach us is so hard for us to understand. So much so that God has to bring us somewhere that we're familiar with in order to teach us something that we're unfamiliar with. It's an incredible teaching method, and it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world. People would teach in parables. It was taught through philosophy. It was taught through history, poetry, how to do rhetoric, how to do speeches. All this sort of stuff was taught through parables. It was very common at the time. And so Jesus starts this this teaching of the parables, and he tells about something that the people of the time were familiar with. Sowing seeds, farming Israel, or the province of Judea in the Roman Empire, didn't have abundantly massive resources that just naturally happened. It was a very dry place. It still is today. And so a lot of the things that they did was pastoral work, was um, herding cattle or sheep, or was agriculture, farming, throwing seeds. And so when, when Jesus told this story of casting seeds out and farming, It was a very familiar mental picture to the audience of the time. Now, the audience of the time isn't this audience today, so we get to do a bit of extra work to understand what is happening here. As we read the passage, as as I looked over this parable this last time, I noticed the seeming almost recklessness, the, 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 the lack of a, the abandon, if you will, of the sower just throwing seed anywhere. The sower didn't seem to prioritize certain amounts of soil. It just says that the sower, the farmer, just cast seed wherever, and it landed wherever. He didn't say this soil specifically and not that. Now, I am no farmer, nor did I grow up a farmer. I don't know if you could tell. So I don't know much about farming as it is, and I do know that farming today is radically very different than farming of this day. But that's something, I'm like, he's just throwing seed everywhere. A lot of it seems to be going to waste. But this is all as we're reading it. This is all as we're understanding it. Apparently, though we're reading it and we have certain ideas of what it may mean, its original audience, it completely fell flat. People didn't really understand what Jesus was saying. Again, this is the time you decide to teach confusing stories, Jesus when it seems like your back's up against the wall, when it seems like things aren't going well, that's when you tell parables? What are you doing, man? Verses 10 through 12. After he's done teaching some parables, the disciples and a few others in the crowd says they gather in. 
they gather in and they ask questions. It says they asked him about the parable. Jesus, what are you talking about? This is what you have for us? This is our encouragement? Jesus responds in verse 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Isn't that a hard verse to read? Aren't those challenging verses? Jesus, what it sounds like you're saying is it sounds like you're saying that you're trying to talk in a very confusing way for the purpose of making sure certain people don't understand what you're communicating. That's your plan? That's your goal, Jesus? What are you, what? This is so confusing. I'm really emphasizing this because so often we breeze over it. We say, yeah, there are some issues. Some people get it, some people don't. Imagine you're there after all of this opposition. People just aren't going to understand this. And not only that, but not only does Jesus say that from his own experience, he also looks back. You'll notice that he quoted a specific uh, passage. He quoted the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. They may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. This was a prophecy that God gave way back in the day of the prophet Isaiah. The same prophet who had that crazy vision in heaven and, and God says, who shall go before me? And he says, here I am, Lord, save, send me. And we stop there when we read Isaiah and we forget that the entire next section says, good, you're going to go to a group of people, you're going to tell them about their sin, and they're not going to understand. We're very eager to say, here I am, send me. We're not very eager to read the next section. It's discouraging. You're going to go to a group of people, and you're going to communicate to them the coming judgment of God because of their sins, and they're going to stay in their sins. And you're going to keep talking to them and keep talking to them and keep talking to them. And they're just not going to get it. Imagine the disappointment. Imagine the disappointment for the prophet Isaiah. Imagine the disappointment for Jesus' disciples. I can imagine the disappointment that maybe some of you feel today, as you may have in your mind right now, somebody, maybe a family member, maybe a close friend, maybe a colleague at work that you've had conversations with for months, years, that you've tried to show Christ to, and they don't get it. Those dots don't connect. How discouraging. Jesus still hasn't explained the parable, by the way. That's something else to notice. He still hasn't explained this thing. But what he has done here in a very powerful way is that he's shown that in the midst of that discouragement, that in and of itself has fulfilled a prophecy which guarantees that his ministry is from God. 
Did you catch that? If you didn't, let me say it's a different way. Isaiah chapter 9 says this, They may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That was partially fulfilled in the day of the prophet Isaiah. But Jesus is connecting that prophecy to his own ministry and saying, just as it was then, so also is it now. And both of those were how God wanted it to be. That was God's plan. Just as it was back then, so it was in Jesus' day. He would share the message of the kingdom, and certain people would not understand it. On the fact that many people wouldn't understand it fulfills this prophecy. And that is Jesus' evidence for saying, what I'm doing is not from Satan, but is in fact from God. Doesn't that sound so backwards? From the seeming lack of success proves God is on the move. Really? That's what you got for us, Jesus? Jesus is here fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is here making a statement. The kingdom of God is coming. It's not going to be what you think it is. It's not going to look how you think it is. There may not be an immediate recognition of it happening, but underneath everything that we're going through, all of the hurt, all of the seeming unanswered prayers, or at least not answered in the way we want them to, in the midst of all of that difficulty, God is on the move. God is working. Take heart. Jesus then spends the rest of the passage explaining what this parable even means in the first place. Verse 13, he says, Do you not understand this parable? How then would you understand any of the other ones? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the first of four parables Jesus shares. And we'll talk about some of the other parables in the next coming weeks. But I want to focus on this one because here he gives us this explanation. This is not just, and when, when, he, when we hear this parable, so many times we first apply it to ourselves. Which soil am I? And that's a valid question, I think. Which soil am I? Am I the rocky ground? Am I the thorns? Am I the roadside? Am I doing Okay. We're very quick to put it onto ourselves and interpret it with our own understandings. 
that can be a very valuable application. But the interpretation of this passage forces us to look back in that moment. Look back on what Christ is doing. The sower, the one who's farming, is the one that's sharing the word, the word of God, the announcements of the kingdom of God coming. Ha, huh, sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus is here saying that he is the one that's sowing the word, or any others are the ones that are sowing the word. And they'll sow it to anybody and everybody. As he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. To everyone is shared the word, but very few accept it. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's explaining what is happening in his ministry. He is telling them what's going on. He's saying that I'm the one sharing this word of the kingdom. There's some that accept it. Perhaps he had in mind those of his disciples that are coming in, that are waiting afterwards and coming to him and asking for further explanation. Those who are drawn to Jesus. Perhaps they are the good soil. But the rest, seemingly three quarters, but who can put that number on that, right? Have different things going on in life between them looking at themselves or them getting discouraged by the world or them not having a firm foundation in who God is all cause them to fall away and to not bear fruit. But in the midst of the seeming majority turning from God, there is still growth. Even when things seem to be going wrong, there is still growth. That is our encouragement in this passage this morning, is that even when everything else around us seems to be going wrong, even when it seems like people aren't understanding, even when it seems like I've got difficulties in life, God is still working. God's kingdom will grow, but it won't grow the way that we would do it. God's kingdom will grow, but not the way that we may do it. We have our own ideas of how we think God should be working in this world, don't we? For every person in this room, there's at least an extra opinion of what God should be doing. And not all of that is bad. A lot of that is personal. A lot of that is connecting with others who don't believe in Jesus and saying, I want them to know the truth. I want them to believe in God. And yet God is here saying, he is working. He's just not going to us for advice. If we say it like that, it changes the thought process a little bit, doesn't it? Let's look at this from an encouraging place, and let's just look at our lives as, as believers. I don't know the way that you came into this room this morning. I don't know the joys and the burdens and the difficulties you may be going through. I don't know your hardships. I don't know your struggles. I don't know your exhaustion. I don't know where you are with God. I don't know if this message is working for you. I don't. But I do know that God does. I do know that even if you are in that difficult place, 
even if you have doubted God, even if you've questioned God, even if you've struggled with God and said, God, why are these difficulties happening in my life? The, the next logical extreme that many times we take is we say that God is, God doesn't, I'm doing something wrong, God. What am I doing wrong that you're doing this to me? What am I doing wrong that there's these difficulties in my life? God's response in this passage is, Things not going our way does not equal a removal of God's blessings from our lives. Things not happening the way we wish does not mean a removal of God's favor, a removal of God's love. This is an encouraging point for you and me. Even in our difficulties, God is working. We just can't see it sometimes. And when we do, many times it seems a lot smaller than we think will make a difference. But God says, everything's going to plan. Take heart. Now that's an individual context. We can expand this to a much larger context. One of the things I was noticing in this passage as Jesus was sharing is that this is a hard truth to accept. The fact that God's kingdom will not look the way that we think it should or won't grow in the way that we think it should. And when I compare that to how so many Christians think of God's working in our world today, I see nothing but conflict. I wonder how many churches would invite Jesus to their budgeting meeting. Jesus, we gotta, we gotta turn these numbers around. What do we do? Apparently, he says in this passage, it's going to be hard. Things are going to struggle. I wonder how many church strategy conferences would invite Jesus as their keynote speaker. When he comes in and everybody's saying, what, is the, what are the ways to attract people, to bring people into church, to give them a space to hear the word of God? Jesus comes in on this keynote speaker stage, and he says, it's going to be hard but I'm still working. It's not going to look as successful as maybe you think it would, but I'm still working. I think that this is an idol that, our, that us as the church, especially a church in the United States, struggles with, is, is trying to wrestle through and get out of this thought of seemingly worldly marks of success do not equal godly marks of success. The easiest ones to throw out are money and church attendance. Numbers. Whenever people ask me how the youth group is going at Calvary, they don't ask me, how's the youth group going? They say, how many students do you have? You know how many times I've been asked that question, both in-house and out-of-house? When hearing of other churches or even hearing of our own, we may say, yeah, money is tight right now. We're, we're struggling. Or money's going great. God is working. Like those two are connected. This can be a personal struggle for a lot of us because some of us may remember a time when it was seemingly easier to be a Christian than it may be now. And some of us may remember a time where churches seemed a lot more full of people than they do now. 
And many of us may struggle with saying that our church doesn't look like it may have used to, and so therefore, for some reason, God may be far from us right now. God may be disappointed. God's favor may be pulled away. We wouldn't say that. But sometimes it seems like that, doesn't it? Even in those times, when churches go through hard transitions, even those times when it seems like budgetary lines may be in the red, even those times when you look around and say that a sanctuary may not look as full as it used to, God's blessing is not being removed. For us to say that it is, is to believe in a prosperity gospel that falls short of what the gospel truly is and equates God's movement to bodies filling a space. I say this both forcefully, but I also say this empathetically because there's room for grieving. There's room for hurting and wishing that things may be as they were We can grieve that it may be harder to be a Christian today than it may have been 30 years ago. We can struggle with that, and we can share our disappointments with God in that way. We can be disappointed with God? Yeah, he can take it. We can be disappointed with that. But what we cannot say is that, therefore, because of that, God's blessing is removed from any group of Christians, from any church, in any situation, in any setting all over the world. God's kingdom is growing. This parable promises growth, promises fruit, promises God is working. God also promises at different points in the scriptures. You may hear of wars, rumors of wars, catastrophes, calamities, all these other things, but take heart. For God has overcome the world. God's in charge. Be encouraged. As we look around and say, God, I may not see it out here. I need your help with this one. Because this is hard. Jesus is promising us difficulties and struggles to see his kingdom truly at work. This is discouraging for us, and we must recognize this, but this can also be comforting to those of us who have been given eyes to see and do hear how God is working differently. If we look at God's growth, not through the lens of this world, but through the lens of how he says he will work, there is much, much to be excited about. God's not done. God is not silent. God is not far. God's kingdom is growing. Just may not be how you think it should be, or it may not be the way that you want. This is a challenging message, but one that causes us to struggle to be encouraged, to battle to be encouraged, to say, God, I don't get all of this. But what I do know is that I can trust in the words you have given us, that you are working, that your gospel is doing what it said it would do. And because it is, it will. Just as all the promises that God gave for this age is true, 
so are all the promises that God gave to the age to come will also be true. Take heart, for God says he has overcome the world.